0: C.S. Lewis first published his book, um, A Grief Observed, is the title of his book, one of his books. Um, He published it in 1961 under a pseudonym, N.W. Clerk. This book, A Grief Observed, um, it really was excerpts of his journals in in which he mourns the death of his wife. Her name was Helen Joy Davidman. And he refers to her as just simply H throughout the book. When the couple wed, um, Lewis was in his late 50s. Davidman was 41 and she had two sons from a previous marriage and they were only together for three years before she died from cancer in 1960. C.S. Lewis died in 1963 at the age of 64. Actually on the exact same day, JFK died. He writes this in this book, Uh, A Grief Observed. He says, No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It's so uninteresting. Yet I want others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. There are moments, most unexpectedly, when something inside of me tries to assure me that I don't really mind so much, not so very much after all. Love is not the whole of a man's life. I was happy before I ever met H., I have plenty of what are called resources. People get over these things. Come, I shan't do so badly. One is ashamed to listen to this voice. But it seems for a little to be making out a good case. Then comes a sudden jab of red-hot memory. And all this common sense vanishes like an ant in the mouth of a furnace. On the rebound, one passes into tears and pathos. Maudlin tears. I almost prefer the moments of agony. These are at least clean and honest. In the bath of self-pity, the wallow, the loathsome, sticky, sweet pleasure of indulging it that disgusts me. And even while I'm doing it, I know it leads me to misrepresent H herself. Give the mood its head and in a few minutes I will have substituted for the real woman a mere doll to be blubbered over. Thank God the memory of her is still too strong. Will it always be too strong to let me get away with it? No one ever told me about the laziness of grief. Except at my job, where the machine seems to run on as much as usual. I loathe the slightest effort. Not only writing, but even reading a letter is too much. Even shaving. What does it matter now whether my cheek is rough or smooth? They say an unhappy man wants distractions, something to take him out of himself. Only as a dog-tired man wants an extra blanket on a cold night. He'd rather lie there shivering than get up and find one. It's easy to see why the lonely become untidy, finally dirty, and disgusting. Meanwhile, where is God? There is one of the most disquieting symptoms... When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seems so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present, a commander in our time of prosperity, and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? I think that last sentence, those last few sentences maybe, speak to those days when, when Jesus didn't come here in John chapter 11. Those days when Mary and Martha had sent him their prayer, Lord, he whom you love is ill, and, and probably they received his answer, which may have been comforting at first. This illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then Jesus didn't come. In fact, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he waited two days longer in the place where Lazarus was. And then Lazarus died. And then his answer to their prayer, that one that they had received, surely it didn't seem comforting at that point. William Cooper, in his hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, he wrote this. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. That bud that Martha and Mary had received had a bitter taste. It tasted like death. And they scanned his work in vain. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yet God is his own interpreter, and Jesus Christ is about to make things plain. Let's read this. John chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 17 to 37. John 11, beginning in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. Come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Let's pray one more time. Lord, we are are in need of Christ. Help us to see Him, to hear of Him here, to understand and to be made like Him. Give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. So here's a question. What grieves God? When God looks out at His creation, which when, when completed on the sixth day, He looked at His creation and called it very good, what does he now see when he looks upon this creation that grieves him? Well, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, it says it like this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Later, the, the psalmist in recounting God's, God's gracious work for his people and their response to him. He wrote this in Psalm 78, verse 40, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. We see this in Jesus himself as well. In Mark's gospel, Mark tells of a specific moment of Jesus being grieved. In Mark chapter 3, just listen to the first six verses. Mark uh, 3, 1 through 6, he entered into the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to him, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. He saw the crowd. He saw the man, and he asked them, he looked around at them in anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Our God is grieved at sin. He's grieved at what sin in the, in the heart of man, the evil intentions and rebellion, he's grieved at what it has done. He's grieved at our hard-heartedness. He's grieved at, that all of this leads to death. And so he has provided a way of escape through Jesus Christ. Our greatest need is to know Christ. That man with the withered hand, his greatest need was not for healing, his greatest need was to know Jesus Christ. Lazarus' greatest need was to know Jesus Christ to be made alive together with Him, to be redeemed by Jesus Christ, and to be sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance of salvation until we acquire possession of it when we are glorified with Him. So look at this transition here between verses 27 and 28 of John 11. She said to Him, Yes, Lord, I believe that You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. Verse 27 is an explicit statement of faith, a confession of faith. And it's not the first confession in the Gospels. In fact, it's, a, it's actually a later confession. We're nearing the end of Jesus' earthly ministry here and by the time we get to this scene in John 11. But back in the first chapter, in John chapter 1... One of the disciples, Nathaniel, had made his confession and, and Jesus in response actually pushed back a little bit. In John chapter 1, I think it's verse 49, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You're going to see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus also responded to Peter's famous confession of Christ. In fact, Jesus blessed him and made made three or maybe even four promises. Matthew chapter 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of God, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He responded to his confession with promises. But here in John chapter 11, following Martha's confession, John, in narrating this, he quickly transitions the scene with no response at all from Jesus. We obviously don't know if more was said, but the confession is what the Holy Spirit wanted us to read, and no more discussion was necessary. Look at this again. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary. She said to her in private, the teacher is calling for you. Martha seems to have been sufficiently instructed in those previous passages, sufficiently comforted by Christ. And so now they turn their attention to Mary. And as Martha pulls her aside and whispers, the teacher is here and is calling for you, the scene has a transition. Now, there had been a time in Martha's life where she wouldn't do this. She wouldn't have done this. In fact, in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, we read a record of Martha attempting to pull Mary away from Christ, away from Jesus. Jesus. And if you compare those verses with these, you can see the transformation in Martha's heart through her actions. So listen to Luke chapter 10. I'm just going to read these verses, 38 to 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now instead of, instead of trying to pull Martha or Mary away from Jesus, she's, she's pulling her toward Jesus. The, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. Come. Verse 28 here tells us um, specifically that that she went to Mary in private. She went and called her sister, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. There's probably a couple of reasons for this. Uh, First, uh, because of the fact that John uses the term the Jews in verse 31, Um, there's at least an implied bit of opposition Typically, when John, I've said this before, when John uses the term the Jews, he's talking about the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. And so there's at least a little bit of opposition here. I don't think there are real Pharisees here. We see that as this um, plays out. They run back and tell the Pharisees. But there's at least a little bit of opposition to Christ in some of the people who are there observing this whole scene. It's not the Jewish political um, religious leadership from Jerusalem. The scribes and Pharisees, yet nevertheless, there are some who are skeptical of these things and maybe even downright opposed to Jesus. Um, the second is that many of these Jews, especially the ones who had come from Jerusalem, were possibly either either mourners who were there because they had business interests in being there. Uh, Mary is wealthy, and so possibly they were doing business with her. Maybe that's why they were at this funeral, or maybe they were at least some of them were a sort of professional mourner, who went from funeral to funeral, really making loud lamentation. And so, while they may not have necessarily been been paid to be there, whether Martha was uh, the things that Martha was going to say to Mary uh, were none of their business. This was a private matter between sisters, and they were trying to protect even the whole funeral. And what was happening. But maybe this is even more significant than we notice at first reading. Uh, Matthew Henry says this, he says, the saints are called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ by an invitation that is secret and distinguishing, given to them and not to others. They have meat to eat that the world does not know of, joy that a stranger does not intermeddle with, So at the risk of sort of hyper-spiritualizing a a normal request to speak with Mary in private, we need to acknowledge that this is is often how the saints are called. This is actually always how the saints are called into fellowship with Christ. Paul will write it out like this in, in Romans chapter 10. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be or will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord does so because someone tells them. But really what's behind it is that Jesus is secretly calling them, working in their heart. Maybe I should say Jesus is calling them in the secret place of their heart. Calling them to himself. Do you remember Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2? When we get to the end of the sermon, his conclusion is this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Do you remember the response of the people? The very next line is, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. They were cut to the heart because the Holy Spirit was working in their hearts. As Peter spoke, And that call is effective in the secret place of the heart. I already quoted one hymn. I want to quote another one. Charles Wesley. One of the most vivid hymns of all time, I think. In the third verse, this is why we should sing all the verses. He wrote this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? The effectual call to come to Christ, wh- whoever delivers it, whether it's a, a preacher, or, or a Sunday school teacher, or a parent, or a friend, or a coworker. The call to come to Christ, nevertheless, is given by Christ himself. The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. Look at this again in verse 28. And when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Calling Jesus the teacher there... Uh, In verse 28, it was probably a common term for his followers, for his disciples, um, at least before his death and his resurrection. It was a title of respect that that all of his, uh, if we could put it this way, all of his students would recognize, the teacher. So imagine, for example, like a fourth grader saying to his classmate, the teacher is here and is calling for you. They would know exactly who the teacher was. It's the same for, for Jesus' students here, his disciples. The teacher is here. She knew exactly who, he was, who she was talking about. But of course, this is deeper than that. Um, I mentioned earlier in the chapter, both our narrator, John, in writing this, and the sisters, Mary and Martha, they both call Jesus Lord in the opening verses of this um, scene. That word for Lord is, I don't usually do this, but the word for Lord is the Greek word kurios. But then when the disciples uh, question his decision to return to to, to Judea, try to say that ten times fast, to return to Judea, um, in verse 8, the disciples call him rabbi, which sometimes we translate as teacher. But it's a different word. In fact, that word in in Hebrew and in Greek is rabbi. But this word for teacher, here in verse 28, it's a completely different word. She doesn't call him the rabbi. She doesn't call him the Lord. She calls him the didaskalos, which carries with it it this this idea of being a teaching master. Or or even better, a, a master teacher. There's a, this, is a, this is a high title. This is a title of utmost respect for our master teacher. In fact, it's one that Jesus himself claims in Matthew 26, verse 18. He, in preparing the Last Supper, he instructs his disciples to go into a city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand, I will keep the Passover uh, at your house with my disciples. Jesus calls himself, instructs his disciples to call him the teacher. And I believe the best translation for this title is actually the master. That's a better translation, the master. George Herbert, um, one of Great Britain's uh, early and most influential pastor poets, when talking about his own poetry, he, he said this, He described his poetry as a picture of the many spiritual conflicts that have passed between God and my soul before I could subject mine to the will of Jesus, my master, in whose service I have now found perfect freedom. He said that Jesus was his master in whose service he has now found perfect freedom. But this is a different sense that we have as the um, than we have as the apostles who wrote, for example, James. In the opening of his letter, called himself a bond of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a different kind of master relationship than a slave master relationship. James speaks of this being a doulos, a, a bond servant, a slave of, of his master, his lord. This is more along the lines of our submission to, for example, the Great Commission, where we have been taught to observe all that Jesus commanded. We are to observe, to follow the teachings of our master teacher as he has commanded us. And here the master is calling for Mary, he's calling her to himself. So here's the the question, have you heard the master's call? Have you heard the master's call? It, It goes like this, come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what the call of the master sounds like. Come to me. Mary was weary. She was heavy laden. She had at one time sat at her master's feet and listened to his teaching. But now, in her grief and and in her seemingly unanswered prayers, where she might even think that they they were wrongly answered, now she remained seated in the house, surrounded by death and mourning. The answer that she had heard from Christ is, This illness will not lead to death. And Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. You can be sure that she did not understand. And it's here, when all hope seems lost, that the master calls. And when the master calls, you go to him. When the master calls, you go to him. Look again in verse 29. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Remember the sister's prayer and the answer that Christ gave them. Lord, he whom you love is ill. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That answer doesn't make any sense to her at this point. But now she's going to get a full answer. Now she's going to be able to look him in the eyes and say, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died because the master has come. The master whom we have waited for and longed for is here and he's calling for you. The master has come. This was the proclamation of the angels. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This was the proclamation of the prophets. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when he calls you to go to him, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat, Come by wine and milk and without money and without price. Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. The teacher is here and he is calling for you. Mary jumped up immediately and ran to him so we can say today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, but jump up and run to Christ. When Mary had heard that Christ had come, her heart was stirred by His presence. And she responded to His call. She didn't worry about what it would look like to the other people in the room. She didn't consider how far she would need to go. She didn't concern herself with what the religious people would think. Consider also this, for Mary, Lazarus was gone. She could no longer find any comfort in her brother or even in the crowds of the people who were there to console her. But as Proverbs 18.24 says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I capitalized the F in friend. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And he is the master. And he is calling for her. For us, again, listen to the words of Matthew Henry. He writes, when, our, when Christ, our master, comes, he calls for us. He comes in his word and ordinances, the word and sacrament, the ordinary means of grace. He calls us by them, calls us to himself, calls thee in particular for thee by name. And if he call thee, he will comfort thee. Psalm 27 verses 7 and 8 says this, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. And look at, the, look at the grief that he is comforting in verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She says the exact same words that Martha had said back in verse 21. Exactly the same. The difference is that we can so so clearly see her grief. She's overcome with sorrow. She's praying again through tears and anguish. She fell at his feet as as a humble, heartbroken mourner pleading with him for answers. She also fell at his feet as a worshiper, trusting in those answers. Whereas Martha may have had a little bit of an edge, a little bit of an accusatory tone. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that whatever you ask God for, he will give you. Maybe there was a little bit of that tone in Martha but Mary is worshiping and she is submissive. Look at these two sisters. Back in Luke chapter 10, Mary sat at the master's feet while, while Jesus had taught, but Martha had spent all of that time indignantly serving. I hope we can see that there is yet again another example for us here. If you put yourself at the feet of Jesus, at the feet of the Master, submitting to His teaching, receiving His instruction in a day of peace, then when you find yourself in a day of tribulation and trial like this, it'll be so much easier to cast yourself at the feet of the Master with the expectation that He will hear your prayers, that He will comfort your heart, and that He will give you hope. Our Master is good. He's kind. He's loving even in times such as this. Mary fell at his feet and he saw and heard her affliction. And when she casts herself at the feet of Jesus in worship and in honor, she proclaimed her submission to his lordship and her trust in his power. When Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who have opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? In falling at Jesus' feet and proclaiming these words to him if you had been here my brother would not have died Mary has made a confession that is just as deep or even deeper maybe than Martha's confession she bowed and confessed Romans fourteen eleven says as I live says the Lord every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God Martha approached Jesus straightforwardly. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. Your brother will rise again. I know he will rise again in the last day. I know these things, Lord. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Mary fell at his feet. She fell at his feet. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where have you laid him? Jesus observed her grief. And he observed the grief of those with her. And he wept right with them. And we're going to have to pick it up there next week because we wouldn't do it justice in 10 minutes to look at what he says next. So let's stop here. Pray with me. Father, as we hear our master's voice, it is our prayer that we would run to him. That we would run to him for comfort. That we would run to him in submission, gratitude, worship, for consoling and love. That we can cast all of our care upon this Savior who is in this scene weeping with Mary. grieved over sin and death, grieved over the effects that all of this has upon those whom he loves. Father, it is our prayer that we would run to Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name.